because whether you're selling to the end customer or to a customer who has another customer at the end of the chain, uh, they're all humans. And, and, and sometimes I believe we tend to dehumanize the whole area, the whole business. Today's guest in CMO Talk is Dean Aragon, CEO and Vice Chairman at Shell Brands International. This is CMO Talk, the podcast, marketing discussed at the highest level. CMO Talk is sponsored by our valued partner, Adobe. My name is Klaas Weima. I'm a professional marketer, founder of Agency Energize and podcaster since 2008. In this monthly show, we unravel the secrets of world's marketing giants. And I'm Adam Fields. I'm a stand-up comedian. And my job today is to try and, you know, get uh, our guest to, to relax, feel comfortable and, and to come out of his shell. Our guest today is Dean Aragon, also known as the Brand Guy. Since 2014, Dean has served as Global Vice President at Shell. He's also CEO and Vice Chairman at Shell Brands International. Prior to Shell, Dean spent nearly two decades at fast-moving consumer giant Ernie Unilever, earning his stripes as global marketer in various senior positions. And we all know Shell as one of the biggest independent oil companies in the world. Um, today, we discuss with Dean how he approaches business-to-business -business or B2B marketing, a subject often overlooked in marketing education. Maybe because, according to Dean, there's no such thing. So what is it then? We'll hear it from Dean himself in this episode of CMO Talk. Dean, welcome to the show. Or should I say, Magadang Umagapo. Did I say that right? That, that was that was very credible. I've been, I've been Thank practicing. You. I've been practicing. Yeah, Magandang Umagadin, which basically means uh, oh, good morning as well. Brilliant. Let's take it away. How does it feel serving at the helm of uh, one of the Earth's biggest brands? It's a, certainly a, a huge privilege. Um, it's a very iconic, ubiquitous brand, but it's also a brand that needs to pivot. It needs mm -hmm. to pivot into uh, becoming a net zero emissions energy brand, mm -hmm. uh, one that really enables uh, the provision of more and cleaner energy so that progress can continue because we all need energy, but it cannot just be any energy. It needs to be cleaner. Sure. So there's, lots, there's still a lot of work to be done uh, for yeah for for Shell. Um, um, so I was, I was wondering, I was checking in the in the prep, I was checking your LinkedIn page, and and there you mentioned that you focus on leveraging the power and potency of a brand by harnessing its humanity. And in marketing, we talk about B two B and B two C and B two B two C, but you say, oh, there's no B two B. It's all B two humans. And I think a lot of listeners frown upon the idea that B two B marketing not existing. Can you explain why you feel that way? I didn't say they didn't exist. In fact, I wasn't really necessarily focusing on B two B. For me, sometimes we get too hung up on these technicalities, and that's why I said whether it's B two C or B two B or the continuum of B two B to C. Sorry, I'd this like is getting quite confusing. It sounds 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 more like chemistry lesson. Yeah, that's why I said B to B to B to H or D to C. That's why I said, look, it's all business to humans, right? It's all B to H, uh -huh. or you like B for H brands for humans, because whether you're selling to the end customer or to someone's to a customer who has another customer at the end of the chain, uh, they're all humans, and 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 sometimes we, I believe, we tend to dehumanize the whole. 
the whole uh, area, the whole business, and it becomes very transactional. And I think that's not what marketing is supposed to mm. be about. I mean, if you think about the root word of customer, what is the root word of customer? It's custom, right? So in Victorian England, if you were uh, a very frequent patron of the shop, the shopkeeper would say, well, thank you for your custom. Thank you for returning. And therefore, marketing needs to always provide compelling, credible reasons for customers to return to you, to keep on preferring your brand, your products and services over others. And I think sometimes we forget that because we're, yeah. it's very short term, it's very transactional. Uh, and, and I think if you think about the custom of returning to you as another definition of loyalty, what are the logical but also emotional, visceral reasons for, for, for them to return? Just, so just, just backtracking a little bit, uh, what exactly is Shell Brands International? What, what, what is that distinctive from the, from the Shell brand? We are, we're the company, we're a subsidiary of, of the Shell Group that is in charge of managing and marketing the Shell brand or trademark. Okay, in, in, in its entirety. So oh. In its entirety, because um, I came from a company that was a house of brands, you know, as you said, you know, where I would argue that the least known brand is the house brand, right? Because there are bigger brands in the house of Unilever. But in the case of Shell, it is a branded house. It's a singularly branded house mm. and where the, that brand is able to uh, provide uh, equity into the different sub-brands or sub-product or service offerings. Okay. And what's your role exactly at Shell? Well, I'm effectively the brand guy. <laughs> <laughs> I, I look after uh, the Shell brand and all of its uh, permutations. How does it play out in the different uh, divisions, units, products, and solutions that Shell offers under the ages mm. of the of the brand. Okay, nice. Now you mentioned um, it, it's all about people to people, um, business to humans, as you were saying. Uh, does it mean there's no difference in approach when when talking to consumers or businesses? I think there are obviously contextual differences if you're in a B two B business or a B two C business. But sometimes in B two B, and by the way, I I must. Uh, declare that I'm very big and long on B2B marketing. I think this is the area of marketing that hasn't yet been fully explored and developed um, because a lot of the marketing um, education, training, capability, enablement is shaped by, um, I would like to call FMCG or consumer goods marketing. Um, uh, and I'm one of them who came from this world, but in the last seven, eight years, I've really discovered that B2B marketing is powerful. Think about it, right? Uh, to your question, there are less humans involved in B2B marketing. You actually can know enough humans to make up a significant part of your business. Try that in FMCG. You, you'll never make it. Mm -hmm. And so that's why in FMCG marketing, marketers tend to do projective research. You know, you speak to a thousand and project it to a hundred million, right? Uh, and that is, of course, loaded with a lot of inaccuracies. But in B2B, 200 customers, 200 people can make up 80% of a huge multi-billion dollar business. The stakes are higher because you're not just buying a bottle of shampoo. You're, you're, you're buying uh, very valuable materials that are crucial mm -hmm. to your business. And, you know, the, I think, you know, there's so much more at stake for that. You know, like, is this the right partner? If you buy a wrong bottle of shampoo, you just go back to the store and buy another one. Right. Right. 
So to me, the principles of marketing, the principles of engagement of customers really are more torture tested in the area of B2B marketing. Interesting. I was thinking about, okay, can you give a concrete example of um, uh, a people-to-people marketing, a brand which, is, which really stands apart doing a great job? I mean, if I look at a Shell example, right, a B2B example, uh, we sell a lot of lubricants to independent garage houses where cars get serviced mm-hmm. and there are uh, mechanics that are assigned to your car. Um, so we we obviously sell to the shop owner and also, in a way, we market uh, the val- the quality, the utility of our lubricants as opposed to others to the mechanics so that they can recommend uh, for instance, the the shell lubricants for 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 the motorist's car, for the for the car owner's car, and I think that's not dissimilar to when I was at Unilever, where there were salon brands where, of course, you want the person sitting on the chair whose hair is being styled to to appreciate your products, but technically you have to go first through the salon owner, the hairdresser behind the chair, and convince them that your product is worth recommending to your clients or worth stocking at the at the so-called back bar. So it's a it's a case where you do market to the customer who's buying the products directly from you. Mm-hmm. But you also have to know very well the customer of your customer. Right. So we talked about that continuum of B2B to C. Now both parties are inescapably human. And if you don't know how to connect with them in very human ways, if all you know about them are data and not deep you know, insights that are pointing to, you know, psychological levers that explain, well, why do they think about your brand in a particular way? Why do they behave in a particular way? Then you would be pitching it quite superficially. Talking about senses, if you talk about humans, we also talk about senses and sensory marketing. And I know that you're also involved in the sound of shell. Could you uh, tell us a little bit more about that, about that project? It's a great Question. Thank you. I, I, I would have I would have paid you to ask me that question. <laughs> uh, it's uh, it's uh, again if you treat the brand as uh, human like, so that it can engage its human customer stakeholders or consumers, you have to adopt and adapt human qualities such as sensories, right? Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of game and a lot of uh, art already behind the visual identity of a brand. But what about the sonic identity? And by that, I don't just mean the song that you play as a soundtrack, but really the soundscape, the, an indelible sonic thumbprint, if you like, a sonic logo. So if you could see the logo of the brand, what would it be to hear that logo? And that's what we tr- we, we did with uh, the sonic brand of Shell. We, we call it SOS, the sound of Shell. It cannot be a sonic identity that is also so constricting because we hear and appreciate sound or music very differently depending on where you sit in the world. Mm. So what we did with the sonic identity was it was a little bit broader and more flexible in terms of the way it lands. So there are, as of today, probably over 700 sort of arrangements Mm. uh, with different genres, depending on the mood. Is it a triumphant mood? Is it a somber mood? Is it a, you know, a very genteel sound? And what sort of instrumentation are you using? Does it does it sort of bring images of Thailand or does it bring images of Mexico? So uh-huh. you know, how do you channel that sense of local flavor? Because we don't have yeah. global customers, right? No. Nobody does. Most 
customers are very, very local. Local, yeah. So there are actually variations if you hear the sound logo or, or are experiencing the, the Sonic brand, I should say, of Shell uh, in Europe or in Asia? Well, the mnemonic, the mnemonic signature, which is a five-note signature in D major, uh, uh, only has about five, seven versions because mm-hmm. you want that to be also quite uh, recognizable. Yes, and imprinted. But yeah. because it's not just the mnemonic signature, it's also the, the soundtrack, mm-hmm. the, the whole soundscape, the sound effects, those are the areas where we we have flexed. So if, it's, if, if you want to really connect with the Turkish customer, uh, we feel that, you know, they, they want to be able to hear that sort of that, that Turkish vibe, that Turkish nuance in the sound. But the signature at the end, the five-note signature, will not be, be very flexible. Love CMO Talk? Leave us a review on Apple Podcast. We're interested in your opinion, and you'll help others find this podcast too. Dean, as mentioned in the intro, the uh, B2B aspect of marketing is often overlooked with education and awards. And this brings me to the first statement we have today. And that is, B2B marketing does not get the attention it deserves. What do you think of that? I agree um, wholeheartedly. I also don't think it gets the talent it deserves. Mm. Why is that? Uh, I think think that uh, a lot of FMCG marketers uh, don't really see B2B marketing as a potential career path for them. And I think they're really missing out. Is, is it not because, sexy enough? You know, I think because they don't, you know, the, the trimmings of B2B marketing, they're not necessarily involved in these big advertising campaigns. No. Um, uh, they're not necessarily, you know, the most responsive in social media. So there is that, as you say. But uh, But ultimately for me, if you really want to, dive into the principles of marketing, you know, leveraging uh, the, the different elements of the marketing mix. I would argue that B2B marketing is a very rich territory to apply what you what you think you know as, as a marketeer. And I, I have to say that as an FMCG marketeer, B2B marketing for me is, is, is quite humbling. There is so much to learn. And like any challenge, if you approach it with more answers than questions, it's going to be very difficult for you. So one must truly empty their cup, no matter how good you think you are in marketing, because B2B has a lot uh, to teach. You, you And if you ab- approach it with, uh, with a learner mindset, it will be a rich new chapter in your marketing career. Right. What, highly encourage. What have you learned? What have you learned specifically? Well, for one, I've learned that a lot of this customer intimacy principles that we sort of feel, talk a lot about in, in, in B2C marketing is truly at play <laughs> in B2B marketing. Uh, as I said earlier, in there are less humans involved. You can really be very intimate in understanding the whys, mm-hmm. not just the whats. Yeah? If, you, if you care to, if you really invest the time and resources for that. I also think that B2B marketing um, uh, has, a, has a bigger emphasis on customer lifetime value. You know, how do you really understand how does this play out over time? Because as I said, the transactional values are bigger. There's a lot more at stake than just buying a wrong cup of coffee or a wrong bottle of shampoo or a wrong pair of shoes. So there's much more uh, commercial routing in that sense. 
I also think that there is an interesting uh, challenge in how must one inject more creativity in B2B marketing uh, to the level that is equally required in FMCG marketing because humans are involved and humans, right. humans need that stimulation for the response that you're seeking to elicit, right? You don't, mm. as a comedian, I'm sure you don't say to your audience, hey guys, I'm funny. <laughs> so, and, <laughs> I think you've lost uh, the plot if you do, yeah. Yeah, but but so yeah. much of marketing around yeah. is the equivalent of that, don't you think? It's yeah. message transfer, I'm yeah. funny, instead of stimulus response, where you yeah. deliver a great joke with a killer punchline and people's thought bubbles, if it could be right, oh my yeah. God, I mean, he's so funny, yeah. right? And and we pretend sometimes in marketing that what isn't true in real life suddenly magically must work in business. Well, it doesn't, yeah. right? Yeah. So if it doesn't stimulate you in real life, why would it stimulate you in advertising? Right. Can you give an example of a, a marketing or B2B marketing campaign that you're proud of, that you think worked and on a more human level? I'll go back to the example that I mentioned about, you know, lubricants being sold to uh, mm -hmm. independent garage. This was in India, uh, wasn't it? There's workshops. In this, India. Is, yeah. this is in India yeah. where um, instead of the usual sort of promotional tactics where, you know, you, you, uh, edu you, you give promotional materials, you make them earn points so that they qualify to, to get rewards. I don't know, a free rock sack, a free uh, wall clock or something like that. Uh, our marketeers in India for lubricants decided, well, you know, what are the human needs of our of our customers? And and mechanics uh, are are generally underpaid. Uh, a lot of them are uninsurable. And we said, well, what if something happens to them? Then their family doesn't doesn't get to survive because then during the days that they are off, they 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 will not be earning a daily wage or a weekly wage. And so the team decided, well, what if we partnered with a medical health provider and give them free checkups, help them uh, become insurable. Uh, and instead of earning free goodies or merchandise, uh, the, the stuff that they sell can earn points so that we can help with the matriculation or tuition fees of, of their children. I mean, each time I speak about this, I, I am... I really think twice about why isn't marketing more like this? Right. And, so, and, so, and, so speaking and to it, people's needs rather than what you think, just a token little gift that nobody yeah, I mean, wants. Yeah. I mean, just be more human, right? Just yeah. be more just be more caring. And um, I also think that marketing sometimes, especially in the 21st century, we obsess a lot about the latest tech stack, the latest digital social platform. My plea would be let's obsess instead about the humans at the heart of our business. Because the substance of what makes us human has not fundamentally changed. changed. Mm. We just pretend that it has changed mm. because we are, in a way, um, uh, infatuated uh, with the whole the technical wizardry that is surrounding us. It's the same with data, right? Uh, uh, I wrote a chapter in the book "Build Brilliant Brands" about humanized data-led creativity. The abundance of data can literally hoodwink us into thinking we know so much. Mm -hmm. In reality, we know so little or we know so very uh, superficially about our customers or our stakeholders yeah. because data is not the equivalent of insights. Data is a lot of what's. Insights are the answers to the question why. 
that we need to keep on asking until we get to the deep psychological levers. Don't want to miss an episode of CMO Talk? Subscribe on your favorite podcast app or on cmotalk.global. I would like to ask you a, a second statement or post you a second statement. Due to the rise of digital platforms and the acceleration of commerce, many advertisers are shifting to a, here we go, a data-driven marketing approach. However, data and algorithms are the opposite of a humanized approach. Here's statement number two. The rise of data-driven marketing equals the fall of customer-centric marketing. I'm not sure I would be that sweeping. but it's <laughs> <laughs> oh, <that's> too bad. <laughs> I think that, look, I'm not anti-data. Data is great. I mean, I use a lot of data. I dive deep into a lot of data because you need to understand the lay of the land. My only plea is that's not enough, mm. particularly when you're uh, trying to understand customers. You need insights. Yeah. As I said, you need the answers to the question why, not just the answers to the question what. Anyone can see what, right? But insights need to explain why. And, and insights also aren't data. They're not observations. They're not anecdotal evidence. And above all, they're not senior opinions mm. uh, pretending to be nuggets of wisdom or fact. Uh, you really need to focus on customers and understand them uh, in both the what and the why. It's not one or the other. No. So is the, you is, cannot just understand why, but don't understand what. Would you would you say data is less important than in B2B, as in B2C, because of the sheer numbers of people you're dealing with? No, I don't think data is less important. I think data is very important. As I said, you need evidence-based professionalism, but it isn't enough. When it comes to human beings, you cannot reduce humans to bits of data. Yeah. Um, because that, that I think, is uh, a failure of marketing. I think marketing needs to engage at the human level. It needs to provide reasons to buy and reasons to buy into. You cannot just get that from data. You need to go deeper than data. You start with data, but then you have to ask why. Why are they, why do they know, why don't they understand our, our narrative? Why are they not loyal to our brand? Why do they find our offer expensive? Rather than Oh, they find our brand expensive. Full stop. So let's promote. Well, I'm not sure how you leapfrog from that data point to that marketing intervention. Mm. Why do they find it expensive? That's that's reassuring. And as a former, yeah, that's reassuring. As a former beauty marketeer, yeah, yeah. Uh, I tend to uh, I'm partial to something that's more reassuringly expensive rather than something that's too cheap to be of good quality. Right. If you know what I mean. Well, it's reassuring because I feel we're losing our humanity, partly due to the constant and pervasive marketing techniques that are invading every aspect of our lives. Um, so not reassuring to hear that you're trying to bring back some more humanity to marketing and a more human-centric approach. Well, I'm certainly trying to uh, advocate for it. Uh, I don't think anyone would claim that they're perfect at anything, and certainly we aren't. I'm not. But I always try to remind myself and my team that, hey, ask the question why. What's the insight behind this? Exactly. And maybe if we address that, we would be more effective. Yep. Right. Well, this brings us now to uh, a number of dilemmas. We've got some several dilemmas I'm going to present to you. And you have to choose one of these two options. Don't think too long and hard. Just give a quick answer. Maybe just, just your gut feeling would be, would be handy. And then maybe afterwards, we'll discuss a few of your answers in more detail 
Are you ready, Dean? I think I am. Okay, here we go. Make your choices now. Personalization or mass marketing? Personalization. I thought you might say that. AI, threat or opportunity? It's a great opportunity. Oh. Solar power or wind energy? If it's England, it can't be solar power. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. We're in the Netherlands. Wind would be a good one, wouldn't it? Yeah. So wind it depends energy. where, right? Yeah, it, depends yeah, exactly. what, it depends what nature has to offer for you. Exactly. Electric or hydrogen cars? I'm actually big on hydrogen, oh. particularly for heavy transport and mass transport. Okay. Purpose or performance? Profiting from purpose. Oh, you made your own one there. Okay. So what do you mean by that? Profiting from performance? Yeah. I think it's a false binary choice. Uh, you ha purpose is means nothing if it doesn't feed the commercial success of the business. Mm. You're just growing a conscience when what you need to, to grow is a repeatedly successful business whose foundations are the good that it does. So if you can profit from purpose, it becomes a repeatable model, yeah. not just a CSR project, a social investment, mm. something that is a pet project of the existing leadership. And when the next leader comes along, it's no longer their pet. Makes right. sense. But how, how, leading on from that, how is uh, Shell doing in reaching its goal of net zero emissions by 2050? Are you on target? Are you, is that something that you really, you're going to reach? Well, we're certainly very committed. We have very clear targets with very clear milestones linked to the pay of 16,000 or more staff. So it's more than just an ambition. It's a clear target. And, and um, you know, we know that we have to, in fact, accelerate that journey. Mm. And that's why we say 2050 or sooner in step with society. Right. Nice. You are also heavily involved in defining, I should say, the, the, the purpose of Shell, right? When you started, I think I, I listened to the, your previous interview with Jim Stengel on the, uh, the CMO podcast. And you said, okay, when, when I first arrived at Shell, the first thing I did was actually defining the purpose of Shell. Is that purpose still actual, uh, considering... Yeah, all the recent uh, developments. Of course, we had the big conference in um, in Scotland, in Glasgow. Are you still totally comfortable with the purpose you you foresaw for, for Shell? Or are they, do you need to pivot? Well, when I joined Shell, that was job to be done number one. <laughs> it was assignment number one was to refresh the, the Shell purpose, yeah. the Shell brand purpose. And 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 that was ultimately launched in 2016 and early 2016. And the purpose statement reads, we power progress together by providing more and cleaner energy solutions. Mm -hmm. Not only is it still relevant, it is even more relevant, right? Given uh, given what we're facing as a, 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 as a, a, a challenge of, of averting the consequences of climate change. Right. Um, when you approach purpose, one of the things that you need to uh, absolutely embrace is that it is a long-term journey. Mm. If it's a North Star, you know you never quite reach the North Star or a star, but it should illuminate the pathways for you. I mean, are your strategic choices still vectoring towards uh, the pathway that the purpose has illuminated? And in February of last year, uh, I'm, I'm quite pleased to say that we launched um, perhaps the fullest purpose-driven uh, iteration of our group strategy, which is why it was also called Powering Progress. And there, uh, we clearly laid out our uh, 
our our um, our plan to be a net zero emissions energy business by 2050 or sooner in step with society. But also um, be conscious that you also have to be conscious of uh, respecting nature, empowering lives, mm. and and of course you also have to generate shareholder value, because as I said earlier, if you're not making money from what you're trying to achieve, then it can't be that repeatable. Makes sense. We, we would like to close off the interview uh, with, with some personal questions, if that's okay with you, Dean. Um, okay. You grew up in the, in the Philippines and mentioned in your bio, bio that you're a proud Pinoy. Uh, which lesson did your childhood give you in pursuing uh, your professional career? I think when you grow up in a, in a country like the Philippines, uh, you you dream of something bigger, uh, you dream of something better, and you don't quite know how to get it or where it is. But mm. there's always that desire to 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 really uplift your life. And my original dream was actually to be the chief economist of the Philippines, which is why I, I majored in economics. Um, but when uh, during career week in our university, uh, the brand some brand managers from Procter & Gamble and Unilever came into in, in to our career week talks and I go oh I think given my personality brand management seems to be more my cup of tea you know it's almost like the combination of business and show business <laughs> because they were doing <laughs> ads and all that that was my very crude sort of interpretation of what they were presenting and they don't seem to discriminate in terms of uh which course you you pursue there were lawyers bio sort of scientists, uh, biologists who were there uh, in, 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 who were now practicing their craft as brand managers. So that's how I got introduced into that world class. You, you once said, uh, the heart leads the mind to unthinkable places. What do you mean by yes. that? Well, exactly what it means that uh, in many ways, I, I, I think I, I must have written that when I was 12 or somewhere along, along that, that age range. That... I find that passion, um, your ability to emotionally connect with an aim, an ambition, powers you through. Mm. Uh, and if your heart is in there, uh, your mind and your body will follow. I, I don't know about you guys, but do you know anyone who's world-class at something that they don't love? <laughs> it, it's almost it's almost impossible right to be yeah. absolutely great at something you don't feel connected to or something exactly. you actually hate um you must have loved something so i know some at some point some people say oh, i hate what i do but but at some point you must have loved it otherwise you wouldn't have pushed yourself elevate yourself in your craft and that's really what i meant and of course i, I had no way to foresee that what i wrote when i was a teenager uh, would be the very philosophy that I would embrace and live by in both life and work. Thank you for listening to CMO Talk with Dean Aragon of Shell about B2B marketing. Don't want to miss out any episode of CMO Talk? Please subscribe on cmotalk.global or your favorite podcast app. If you have any questions or ideas, feel free to email me at class at cmotalk.net. listening please visit cmotalk.global for more interviews the cmo talk podcast is developed and directed by energize audio mixing and mastering by voice booking cmo talk is sponsored by our valued partner adobe